Hello and welcome to the Harvard Data Science Review podcast. I'm Liberty Vittert, feature editor of the Harvard Data Science Review, and I'm here with my co-host and editor-in-chief, Shali Meng. This month, we are getting the scoop on an incredibly hot topic right now, artificial intelligence. Will platforms like ChatGPT run the world anytime soon? Does technology have the ability to be intelligent and also rational? In this episode, we discuss these issues with Steven Pinker. He's an experimental cognitive psychologist and a popular writer on language, mind, and human nature. What happens when an expert on the human mind sits down to discuss intelligence and machines with two data scientists? Keep listening to find out. Well, thank you so much, Steve, for joining us. I know how busy you are. So let's just get to it. What is intelligence? What are the key components? What do you think constitutes you know, intelligence? I think intelligence is the ability to use knowledge to attain goals. That is, we tend to attribute intelligence to a system when it can do multiple things, multiple steps or alternative pathways to achieving uh, the same outcome, what it wants. Mm. I'm sitting here right now in William James Hall, and uh, my favorite characterization comes from William James himself, the namesake of my building where he said, if you look at Romeo pursuing Juliet and you look at a bunch of iron filings pursuing a magnet, you might say, oh, same thing. But there's a big difference. Namely, if you put a card between the magnet and filings, then the filings stick to the card. If you put a wall between Romeo and Juliet, they don't have their lips idiotically attached to opposite sides of the wall. Uh, Romeo <laughs> will find a way of jumping over the wall or around the wall or knocking down the wall. Uh, in order to touch Juliet's lips. So with a non-intelligent system, like physical objects, the path is fixed, and whether it, it reaches some destination is just accidental or coincidental. With an intelligent agent, the goal is fixed, and the path can be modified indefinitely. That's my favorite characterization of intelligence. From that perspective, it seems like it doesn't have to be human. Right, if the system can be made to achieve these goals, is that one way to understand the possibility moving the intelligence from humans to you know AIs, whatever you want to call it? Well, clearly it can't be restricted to human. Otherwise, it would just be a, a kind of a chauvinistic description of one of our traits. And then the concept of artificial intelligence would be an oxymoron. So clearly, we have to have some criterion of intelligence other than what we happen to find in Homo sapiens. So much of your work has also fallen into studying rationality. And is there any connection between intelligence and people's ability or lack thereof to be rational? So rationality and intelligence as concepts, they are pretty close, if not identical, and they both have to be defined with respect to a goal. Um, a machine doesn't try to touch Juliet's lips because that's just not the goal that was programmed into it. But a robot, if it were... If that was the goal that was installed in it, then we would call it intelligent if it did jump over the wall or around the wall or through the wall or had multiple means of attaining that goal. We can also ask the question, though, among humans who differ in intelligence, that's why we have intelligence tests, is that the same as differences in rationality? The answer is not necessarily, because when it comes to humans and we have multiple goals, we can talk about whether the person deploys his or her raw brain power 
to attaining goals that are more consistent with that person's long-term or overall or lifelong goals. And I think that's usually what we mean by rationality. When we say smart people can do stupid things, that's not a contradiction, it's not an oxymoron. What we mean is that in terms of what people value over the course of their lives, esteem, respect, health, stability, and so on, people can do things in the short run that subvert their goals in the long run. We call that being unwise, and we often call it being irrational. Now, there's an empirical question. To the extent that you can measure rationality with a separate instrument from intelligence, how correlated are they among individuals? And one way of doing that is you can go to the literature in cognitive psychology and behavioral economics of common fallacies and flaws in reasoning, like the sunk cost fallacy. Do you say, I should pursue this project because I've already spent so much time and money on it? That would be mm -hmm. as opposed to what is the likely payoff for the time and money going forward? Do people commit a conjunction fallacy? That is, if you give them a stereotype, like the famous example from Tversky and Kahneman of Linda, the philosophy major and political activist, is she more likely to be a a bank teller or a feminist bank teller, and people say she's more likely that she's a feminist bank teller, which violates the conjunction rule in probability. So on the one hand, you have a battery of common fallacies. On the other hand, you have a off-the-shelf IQ test, which involves measures that are include vocabulary, arranging cards into a sequence that represents a coherent story, uh, repeat digits forwards and backwards, solve analogy problems, how well correlated are they? Now, it turns out among our common interests are statistics, that there is a statistical problem here, that the, there was a claim in the literature, and I reproduced this in rationality, that rationality as measured by a battery of tests of fallacies and biases and intelligence as measured by IQ tests correlate positively, but far less than perfectly. Therefore, there may be a separate dimension of rationality that is not orthogonal to intelligence, but it is not perfectly parallel to intelligence. That's a claim by Keith, Stanov Keith Stanovich, a um, uh, cognitive psychologist. He calls it the rationality quotient, or RQ, which he concedes is correlated with IQ, but not perfectly. Now, then the problem is that one could criticize that conclusion by saying that whenever you have two imperfect measures of a single underlying construct, the fact that they don't correlate with each other doesn't prove that they're two underlying constructs. It might just mean that there's imperfect measurement. And so that's an unresolved controversy in the cognitive psychology literature, namely are rationality and intelligence dissociable in a population of, of humans? Speaking of this test for intelligence, you mentioned IQ test. For the machines, we all know there's a Turing test, right? But now just about a week ago, uh, Microsoft research you know, released an article. They're trying to test whether the an early version of uh, GPT-4 has signs of intelligence. It seems there are Basic conclusion is that there are some signs of the intelligence there. I want to ask you, you know, what is your take on whether the GPT at this moment has signs of intelligence and how would you conduct such a test? 
if you want to find out whether things is intelligent or not from whatever we have at, at this at this moment. Well, the, you know, the the Turing test has been sometimes called Alan Turing's worst idea because uh, it really is, despite the fact that it's it, it went viral, uh, everyone knows what the Turing test is. It's actually a pretty crummy test of anything. It's a mm -hmm. test of how easily you can fool people. And the answer is easily. Uh, that is, people <laughs> fooled off. And in fact, this goes back to the 1970s when my former colleague at MIT, Joseph Weizenbaum, who devised the first chatbot called Eliza, had maybe two dozen canned responses. It tried to mimic a uh, Rogerian therapist. And so if there's any sentence with the word mother in it, then it replies, tell me more about your mother. Or if you, if you say, last night I dreamed that blah, 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 it will then say, have you ever wished that blah, blah, blah. So this is really primitive. And it kind of passed the Turing test back in 1974 that Weizenbaum noticed that his own secretary was pouring her heart out to this incredibly dumb chatbot. What it shows is that fooling a person is really not a criterion of anything. Mm -hmm. And it's funny that no other science would use anything like that as a criterion. What is your theory of how plants work? Well, if I can develop a silk flower that fools people into thinking it's a real flower, that shows that flowers are made out of silk. I mean, that just doesn't make any sense. So forget right. the Turing yeah. test. Great. But your, your question really is, could we consider these large language models intelligent? Clearly, they're, they are intelligent in some ways. I mean, they're damn impressive in some ways. Does their intelligence work the same way that ours does? And the answer mm -hmm. is almost certainly no. But the fact that they can achieve goals, not through a canned regurgitated response, but through a mind-bogglingly complex set of calculations that are appropriate to the goal, the goal in this case being continuing a, co a conversation, shows that they have some kind of intelligence. But just as there are many ways in which you can get something to fly, you know, birds and planes do it in different ways, there can be different ways of um, uh, implementing intelligence. And we know that the large language models can't do it the way humans do or vice versa. That's actually a really interesting point leads to my next question, because as you said, the, the, the notion of artificial intelligence has been there for a while, but the most recent one seems coming out of these large language model, the natural language processing that really reminds me because you do a lot of studies on the role of language played in the human intelligence development. So is this a coincidence that we're seeing this kind of next generation AIs coming out of this processing natural language? Is this a coincidence or this is like following a similar pattern, how language itself evolved, you know, plays a very important role in the human intelligence? And do we see some parallel kind of evolution here? Yeah, so the interesting thing about the large language models is that um, ordinarily, intelligence and rationality can't easily be done just in terms of language, just because language is a social medium, it evolved organically, it's used in a conversational context. When you learn math, when you learn computer programming, you've got to learn these formal languages of, of right. uh, you know, mathematics, just because English wasn't designed for all that. English was designed for ordinary humans, you know, chit-chatting, using context, reading between the lines, connecting the dots. And so any kind of intelligence ordinarily would have to be implemented in much more precise uh, and manipulable by rules. Now, the big surprise is, and I got to confess that it 
surprised me is how much intelligence is sitting implicitly in databases of language if they're big enough. In the case mm. of GPT-3, I, and I think chat GPT, is something like half a trillion words. Right. Now, it turns out you could not possibly do anything intelligent by manipulating language from one issue of the New York Times. But if you had language of everything that's been on the internet, you know, since the year, you know, 1995, and then you extract, I think it's 50 billion parameters from the correlations and the correlations of the correlations and the correlations of the correlations of the correlations of words in the context of other words, the human mind can't wrap itself around what those very high order statistical patterns are. Mm -hmm. And what the large language models tell us is that implicit in those statistics, there is a lot of knowledge and, and indeed potential intelligence. What these models don't have is a model of the world that is, uh, you know, they don't see, they don't feel, they don't experience. They don't even have an explicit database of the state capitals and the laws of physics and the history of the, uh, the United States and or even how objects in our everyday experience roll and fall and tumble and what other people tend to do. No one programmed any of that stuff in, but it implicitly seems to have an understanding of that by soaking up patterns that are implicit in those literally hundreds of billions of, of uh, words of text. Now, all that text came from humans. These were people... Right doing Reddit posts and Wikipedia entries and New York Times articles and God knows what else. And so our intelligence kind of dumped all this data there for the taking by these large language models. And it kind of went backwards and tried to, in a sense, infer what kind of world is it? What kind of creatures are humans such that they can dump these half a trillion words down on the internet? It is mind boggling that it could do that. The actual technique is not that new. A primitive version was proposed in 1990 by Jeffrey Ellman, who sadly died a few years ago, doesn't really get credit for the very idea of a neural network model that tries to predict the next word in a sentence from the previous right. word using some hidden states, kind of hidden variables. And I got to say that I'm one of the ones who said that's just not how language works. We don't just predict the next word. We have a hierarchical model of phrases within phrases. We have a, a detailed semantic network of the world. We map from one to the other. And I still maintain that's the way the human mind works. Mm -hmm. The new discovery is, is taking advantage of almost a happy accident that you know, all these millions of people have been dumping their thoughts into the web and it's all archived. Now you have a combination of that mind-bogglingly large data set of language with computational techniques and processors like GPUs that can crunch data like never before. Mm -hmm. And we have this surprise that fairly, I don't want to say stupid, but not so understanding algorithms can mine an awful lot when you've got a data set that that's, that's that large. You're almost sort of saying we created the, the ability of ChatGPT by giving it all this data. Is it possible that something like ChatGPT could be an accelerating technology in the sense that it could 
sort of perpetuate itself into exponential growth and develop some sort of self-identity, you know, become become a being with self-awareness instead of just a machine from all of this information that we've kind of dumped into it? Um, I, I suspect not for, for a couple of reasons. Um, one of them is its growth is, I don't think it's going to be exponential. I mean, it's, it's impressive, but, you know, exponential is, is, is really a lot. Uh, that is, if it's twice as good tomorrow, is it going to be, you know, four times as good the day after tomorrow and eight times mm -hmm. as good the day after that? I, I suspect not. Also, you know, a lot of systems have some amount of self-knowledge. Your computer does a self-check. Your car checks all, out all its systems. So simply having sensors or, or monitors of one's internal state that one then represents is not that big a deal. Mm -hmm. It's not the same as being aware in the sense of actually subjectively feeling something. And it doesn't emerge naturally out of bigger and bigger data. It needs some kind of feedback loop where something that senses the state of the system can then itself become an input to that system. And the way large language models work now is kind of not that way in the sense that they're trained on a data set, pretty much the entirety of the web. Then, you know, they kind of freeze that as of 2021, and these systems have anterograde amnesia for everything that happened after 2021. They don't kind of take in their own knowledge, but it's kind of, it's kind of frozen in what they were trained on. So since the, you know, arrival of ChatGPT uh, is very recent, I think, you know, it's, it's now it's very hard to find anyone who has not either chat with the ChatGPT or chat about the ChatGPT. And all the people I talk to, essentially, you will find, you know, there are people very impressed and there are people quite depressed. And uh, also there are people who really want to suppress this whole thing because they think it's very dangerous uh, if, if out of control. What do you think about this thing with whatever the growth it will have? Is your thinking about this whole thing will overall will be beneficial to humankind? Yeah. Very, you know, it's, a, it's an excellent question. It's a hard question to answer. Um, just about all of our technologies, other than weaponry, which are by design there to inflict harm, but our technologies have, have all had costs and benefits, but we do tend to keep the ones that have benefits. And so overall, uh, our technologies tend to be forces for improvement. The potential of artificial intelligence could be spectacular if it were to develop it, robotics that could drive our cars without the carnage of car accidents, that could do boring, repetitive tasks like stocking shelves and making beds, freeing humans to do better things with their time, could solve problems like energy and pandemics and antibiotics and God knows what else. The potential could be spectacular. Part of the problem is that a lot of artificial intelligence has been deployed towards dubious goals, like multiplying propaganda, disinformation, phishing scams, manipulating people into doing things against their interests. And there is reason for concern. Is the whole industry of AI going to just foist these powerful but dubious technologies on, on us, or is it going to concentrate its resources on the kind of AI that could really make life better? When we talk about the dangers of ChatGPT or the dangers of some of this AI, there have been tons of reports of bias. 
So, you know, like it will it will write a poem praising Joe Biden, but not Donald Trump, or it refuses to write about why fossil fuels could be a good thing. Do you see some real dangers in this or do you think this type of technology will sort of write itself as a whole? Yeah, I think there are two dangers. One of them is that since they're at the mercy of their training set, you know, it's the ultimate garbage in, garbage out. You train them on unrepresentative data and they will reproduce whatever statistical patterns are in that data and they, they could be biased. Uh, now, in some cases, it may be the world that's biased. It's just that uh, a law of social science, people are very uncomfortable with this law, but it's nonetheless true, that whenever you divide a population by any demographic variable, race or class or sex or ethnic group or religion, the means are never the same. Sometimes that's uncomfortable. We don't like to uh, admit that if you divide people up, they don't score the same on anything you care to measure. Uh, we humans are sensitive to that, and we sometimes euphemize or, or, or repress or even choose willingly to ignore certain statistical differences. Even a neural network model that's trained on a representative data set is going to find whatever statistical patterns are in there. And we call some of those statistical patterns biases, but they're sometimes just the statistics of reality. So that's a second kind of, it's a kind of bias in the sense that sometimes we don't want to know what the statistics are. I'll just give you an example. In the court system, a Bayesian justice system that took into account priors might come up with more accurate verdicts, but it would be a, an ethical horror. That is, if you had a defendant, you could look up, well, what's the base rate for people of his age and sex and religion and race? And we'll adjust how much evidence that we require depending on all this background information. Now, if you're a Bayesian statistician, you say, great, that's the way you get the, the most accurate uh, posteriors. If you're a human with a moral sense designing a justice system, you don't want that. You want to say there's some kinds of information we don't want to know. And if your definition of intelligence is you shovel in every relevant data and you let it soak up the patterns that are in there, it could behave in ways that are not so much biased, but that we would judge to be you know, unacceptable or immoral if we had the kind of intelligence that could take into account categorical rules like your race shouldn't matter. Now, there's a third kind of bias, and that's the one that's kind of ham-fistedly been programmed into these systems where you get these kind of wokish apologies if you ask chat GPT questions uh, you know, about sex or about race or about sexual orientation, where it'll say, oh, no, you must never generalize. And, and indeed, there is reason to believe that some of that stuff that's been tacked on, we don't know if it's stipulated in actual rules. More likely, it's from the human feedback, the, human, the reinforcement learning from human feedback, where they try out chat GPT on some humans who then can be horrified and say, no, no, don't, don't give that answer. And it learns those patterns. If you've got a bunch of people with a political axe to grind who are giving that kind of feedback, then the system will replicate their biases and it might indeed prevent you from certain kinds of satire, but not from other kinds of satire or certain kinds of generalization, but not from others. And that's a kind of bias that's almost deliberately programmed in. And people aren't so upset about it because it's the kind of bias they like, you know, unless you're on the other side, then, then you might you know, 
like that kind of bias. You mentioned about uh, how these these large language models seemingly was able to detect these correlations, correlation, correlation. They got some deep patterns. Things like the humans may or may not be able to detect. I wonder if there's another angle which things have become a lot more efficient because some sense I was thinking about the chat GPT almost like this gigantic wisdom of crowd, right? If I get all the experts, I can tap into their brands to ask their questions that they can all tell me. But if I really put together a large group of experts, I have to deal with the issue of human emotions, right? Because, you know, everybody has their takes, they want maybe argue with each other. I wonder if part of this efficiency coming out of uh, ChatGPT or this large language model is because they don't have the emotional entanglement. But that's probably would be both good and bad, right? The bad part is they don't have that kind of say, no, no, you should not do this because there is a judgment involved. So I think I, my question is, is two parts. One is that uh, should we actually try to actively inject some artificial emotion, you know, whatever that means, you know? And the second, like without it, is a part of the danger is because they don't have emotion involved. They can go to directions a person will not do because we have our sympathies, empathies of that nature. I don't know if, if the problem is so much the lack of emotion in the way that we talk about a person being you know, too emotional. It's perhaps lack of setting goals that it is designed to attain. When we call someone emotional, we're all emotional. I mean, we, we ought to be emotional. We fall in love. We're, we get angry. We're, we're afraid of uh, certain things. When we say something, oh, stop being so emotional or let's do this rationally, not emotionally, I think what we often mean is reasoning that satisfies some short-term goal at the expense of some long-term goal. So if someone blows their stack and they start uh, yelling and insulting someone, it feels really good in the moment and it might kind of intimidate someone or punish someone. But if you're you know, in a committee, that's not what the committee is all about. That's not the goal you want to pursue, one person dominating another. Or if you have an uh, you know, ill-advised fling, or if you gorge on some delicious treat or procrastinate something, all of those we call that, you know, don't be emotional. And I think what they have in common is we prioritize the short term over the long term. And you probably don't want an artificial intelligence system to do that. But what you do want it to do, you want to know that it's pursuing the goal that it's designed to pursue. And sometimes those goals can conflict. So in the case of criminal justice system, there are multiple goals. One of them is you want to convict guilty people, but another one is you don't want to convict innocent people. And the third one is you don't want to have any kind of uh, racial disadvantage. And sometimes they're in conflict and it's not trivial to figure out how to um, adjudicate it among competing goals. Sometimes you may not even know or the designer may not have given enough thought as to what the goal is. And in fact, it's, it's not easy to say, what's the point of chat GBT? Uh, that is, what are we, I mean, it's, you know, to chat with someone, but you know, what's so great about that? Um, to simulate composition, is that a goal that we really want? It would be nice if there was more clarity as to what the system is supposed to bring about. And then we can also ask questions. Is it bringing about goals that we ought to want? So we always wrap up with this magic wand question. So I, I was reading some of your previous interviews, and in one of them, you said that, quote, many philosophers that I know think that the world would be a better place if people knew a bit of logic. So if you could wave your magic wand, 
what would be the logic that you would teach people that that everyone would learn? What is that logic that's going to make the world a bit of a better place? I, I would say the biggest one is to be aware of our own fallibility, our own limited knowledge, and the fact that from the inside, it always feels like we're right, that we're both factually correct and morally justified, even when we're not, and that it feels that way to other people as well, even when they're wrong or even when we're wrong. And that's why we have institutions like a court system, like academia with peer review, with freedom of speech, with empirical testing. That's why we have deliberative democracy. That's why we have checks and balances that for humanity to get good things, health and peace and safety and pleasure, we have to step outside ourselves. We have to not just take the view from inside our own skin because we all are subject to biases and fallacies. We always think that we're right. We always think that we're good. But to be aware that that can't be true of all of us all the time, and that's why we have to participate in institutions. And that's why institutions are, are precious, at least good ones. Well, thank you so much, Steve, for this uh, you know most intelligent and rational conversation. It's a, truly a pleasure to listen to you, and thank you. I appreciate it. Many thanks. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of the Harvard Data Science Review Podcast. To stay updated with all things HDSR, you can visit our website at hdsr.mitpress.mit.edu or follow us on Twitter and Instagram at the HDSR. A special thanks to our producers, Rebecca McLeod and Tina Toby Mack, and assistant producer, Ariane Frank. If you liked this podcast, don't forget to leave us a review on Spotify, Apple, or wherever you get your podcast. This has been the Harvard Data Science Review, everything data science and data science for everyone.